Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Live! The Guilty Feminists, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. This is a special edition of the Guilty Feminist podcast hosted by Penguin Live. Scarlett Curtis is a writer and activist and curator of this new book, Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies. Scarlett, hello. Hello. And do you have an I'm a feminist but? I do. I'm a feminist, but I have three younger brothers And this week, when, very excitingly for her work, my mum was given a free Apple Watch, which she didn't know how to use, I argued that it should be mine because throughout my lifetime, I was going to earn 18% less pay than my three brothers. (laughs) And I won. Yay! So it worked. So you used the gender pay gap. Yeah, to get free to get merch. free merch over Smart. my brothers. Amy Trigg is an actor who most recently appeared in Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. <laughs> Amy, hello. Hello. Do you have an I'm a feminist part? I do. I'm a feminist, but I'd quite like to get catcalled once in my life. <laughs> 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 Ask and you shall receive here Done. at Lowry. <laughs> and I've got it recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. You can play that back. You could make that your ringtone. <laughs> Grace Campbell is a comedian and activist and co-founder of the Pink Protest. Hello, Grace. Hello. I'm a feminist, but whenever I do any form of public speaking like this, I scour the crowd to see if there are any hot, single-looking, <laughs> woke men. <laughs> But I, I cannot see any of you, so you might be out there. And if you are, follow me on Instagram after. <laughs> follow me on Instagram. That yeah. is such a young millennial Gen it Z. Is, that, I don't even get people's numbers now. I'm like, just follow just me on follow Instagram. follow me on Instagram. I was thinking you were going to say, meet me in the bar. No, 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 no. Nothing like that. I into my DMs in like six months. How do Gen Zs have sex? I don't understand it. And if you follow that description, follow me on Instagram. I never, ever want to see you in real life. <laughs> are there any woke men of that description? Give us a cheer. Single woke men. Oh, sorry. That was important. Yes. Okay. Well, I believe there are, and I will find one for you. <laughs> Sharmadine Reed is an entrepreneur and founder of War Nails. Sharmadine, hello. Hi. Do you have an I'm a feminist butt? I know you've left me till last because I don't. I'm a feminist, but I don't feel guilty about anything. Yay! Woo! Good on you. 
quite chill over here, just like, you know, existing and enjoying it. I love that ethos. Well, the reason we do I'm a Feminist Butts is to sort of exfoliate our guilt. It's like taking a loofer into the shower and getting off dead stuff we don't need rather than carrying it. Because I think if you do feel guilty, guilt turns into shame and shame is luggage. And then you've got to cart it round with you. So we need to exfoliate guilt. So Scarlett Curtis, what made you want to curate and put together this amazing collection of essays from various feminists called Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies? So I think the idea for the book came about I am obsessed with feminism and have been working as a feminist activist for like the last three or four years but would never ever want to write a book about feminism myself because I am 23 and white and privileged and there are so many areas of feminism that I don't have personal connections with Uh, and you know I've read a lot of very academic very amazing books on feminism but I think there was this gap for something that was just women's personal stories Mm. on how they felt about feminism how they found feminism not how they became a feminist expert or not you know details of their degree in feminism but just their personal introductions into this movement to hopefully help people that maybe aren't sure about whether they're a feminist or not or feel like they need to know more kind of read all these incredible women's stories and realise that maybe they are. And also all the royalties are going to an amazing charity called Girl Up. So that was part of the wonderful part of the pitch. And what does Girl Up do? They're amazing. They're part of the UN Foundation. They work in 162 countries across the world. They work on things like anti-FGM campaigns and ending child marriage and getting girls into education. Then they also train girls in the UK and America to be like girl advocates and talk to their governments and stuff. Wonderful. Very cool. Wonderful. And all the money for all the profits are going to that? Yeah, all the royalties going to that. That is fantastic. So, Scarlett, could we kick off by having you read your essay or a piece you've written uh, for this book? Yeah, so I've written a few pieces in the book because everyone was a tad late on filing their pieces and me and my editor began to panic that no one was going to file. So I ended up writing a few. But this one is called Feminist Comebacks and I'll just read a bit of it. One of the first things that happens when you publicly declare yourself a feminist is that you start getting asked a lot of questions. As soon as you clip on the phone case or wear your T-shirt loud and proud, you are seemingly declaring yourself open for inquiries. If you're anything like me, these probes into your political beliefs will leave you a mumbling mess. I've read enough books and academic essays on feminism to fill a fairly substantial library, and yet as soon as I'm asked to sum it up, I start sweating and string together a few unintelligible sentences before loudly shouting, because Beyonce, I'm running to get another drink. I prepared for tonight, which is why that didn't happen. Um, To save you from this embarrassing fate, I put together a collection of the feminist comebacks that I wish I'd thought of in the moment. Rip out this page, keep it in your back pocket, and whip it out next time you're at a party or stuck in line to the loo with a drunk man. What even is feminism? Great question. It's actually something I'm really passionate about. Feminism is a centuries-old social movement fighting for the equality of the sexes. Intersectional feminists, I'm one of those, believe that all people are entitled to the same rights and they fight to end all discrimination based on gender, sexual orientation, skin colour, ethnicity, religion, culture or lifestyle. I think Bell Hooks said it best when she said feminism is a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation and oppression. All this feminism is political correctness gone mad. Can't you take a joke? Great question. Thanks for checking. You're mistaken. I actually love jokes. I've got one for you. Knock, knock. Who's there? Annie. Annie who? Anything you can do, I can do for 18.4% less pay. Ha, 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 ha. 
But jokes aside, political correctness gets a bad rap, but all it really boils down to is minority groups asking that they not feel marginalised and hurt by everyday conversations or the media. I love comedy. In fact, it's one of my favourite things. But I'm afraid that jokes that offend women, people of colour, disabled people, trans people or others in the LGBTQ community just aren't funny to me. Let's chat when you come up with some better material, preferably something that doesn't offend my friends. Don't you worry that all this feminism is going to make you really unattractive to men? Great question. I'm glad you asked. The thing is, I'd rather not snog a boy who doesn't believe in women's rights or understand that the fight for women's equality benefits every human in the world, not just girls. Also, Margot Robbie's a feminist and she seems to be doing just fine. Woo! Nice. That was great. It was like a frequently asked questions of yeah. feminism and it's put it in a really succinct and funny way. And I think sometimes when I was touring with my book, recently, The Guilty Feminist book, uh, so many women, when they were having their book signed, said they felt like the humorless one at work. They felt like they were the one who couldn't take a joke, who was wanting things to be different, who somehow was always on the out. And they said to me on Mondays when the podcast comes out, I remember, no, I am fun. No, I do have a sense of humor. I am the fun one. And I want to call my next book In On The Joke. Because I think it's a privilege to be in on the joke. You're in on the joke if you're part of the power structure. So we can create our own power structures outside. I think that's a really powerful piece. Amy, what did you write for this book? I wrote a bit about being a disabled actress and then the impact that improvisation had on my work as a human and an actor. And also about Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. So I think it's great to have female role models. And I don't think I had that until later on, except for obviously my mum and everything. Could you read it? Yes, I absolutely can. Okay, so my main obstacle is being disabled. My other obstacle is being a woman. Being disabled means that sometimes I can't get in the room. Being a woman means that sometimes my voice isn't heard when I'm in that room intersectionality at its finest, no? Mm -hmm. Two years after graduating from Mountview Academy of Theatre Arts, I read Tina Fey's Bossy Pants and Amy Poehler's Yes Please. Both are amazing memoirs written by goddesses of whom we are not worthy. One day, these books shall be found in a tomb, post-apocalyptic waterstones, and shall be the foundation of a new religion, hardcore cult. Side note, I am not being sponsored by Amy or Tina. However, I would be very interested in striking up a deal. Hit me up. (laughs) Amy and Tina speak at length about improvisation. In Queen Tina Fey's book, she talks about the producers and directors of an improv sketch group not wanting to make their company gender balanced because there weren't enough parts for women. And here I shall quoth our Royal Highness Tina Fey. We were making up the show ourselves. How could there not be enough parts? Long story short, Dame Tina Fey got on that gender balance team without having to go all Shakespeare in love on their asses. So there I am in my Yoda pyjamas thinking, hold up, Fey, I can create my own parts. I can be a doctor or a lover or reindeer and not just an emotional tool or tick box. Game changer. So I signed up for my scary first improv class and my world opened up. When I'm improvising, I am not limited by someone's expectations of me. I am propelled by the support of those around me. That was some deep shears. Please take a moment. (laughs) Improv has allowed me to play the characters I've always wanted to play. 
which makes this sometimes restrictive industry easier to swallow. It's allowed me to play the whole of me and not just the fragments. Woo! So let's pause there and throw it open to a discussion. How much do you think the expectations of the society around us, patriarchal structures, limit us? Does it take a while for you to go, hold on, I don't have to do these things, I don't have to conform? Sharma, did you come to that realisation that you could do more than society had told you you could yourself? Um, Firstly, can I just comment on Amy's piece? I loved it so much because um, the book... uh, I just keep picking it up and diving in and reading like bits and bobs of my friend's work and it's really exciting. But the reason I loved your piece is because you've called it improv, but it's essentially the same thing that I personally believe in, which is writing your own rules and writing your own story. And to answer your question, I didn't ever make a conscious decision that I was going to go against the narrative that was decided for me because you say that you had your two setbacks of disability and female. I had, I never forget on my first day of cultural studies at university, I studied fashion, but we had a cultural studies class. The lecturer said, if you're male, you get like a plus. And if you're white, you get a plus. And then it had like male, female, black, white. And you can see where this is going. It was like plus, plus for white male and plus, minus for black male. And then minus, plus for... White woman. White woman, but then two minuses for black female. But I was like, but two minuses make a plus. <laughs> so, so I would say less about I had conscious um, against the rules. But what I always did as a kid, and I have no idea, this is just inherent in my personality. I just did whatever I wanted to. Mm. And I didn't like say, I'm going to do this because this is against what everyone thinks of me. I'd just be like, well, of course I can move to London by myself. Well, mm. well yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to run a business and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I just, that's what I do. Sorry. <laughs> like, it's just like, I just get on and do it. The reason I asked that question was because I thought that's what it was about. Like the expectations that are on you as a woman, as a disabled woman, you were able to break out of them by playing anything you wanted to play in an improv setting. And I wonder how much in life we do that, if you see what I mean. Like how much in life we go along with what we're meant to do rather than go, well, why am I fitting into that box of expectations? I think we, what, what the problem is, is that we often feel limited because we can't see that person. So, like, people always say, who do you want to project? Like, whose career do you want to copy? Mm -hmm. Instead of, what do you want to do on your own? We're always thinking of, is there someone that I can mimic? And so if you don't see yourself, if you don't see someone who's done exactly what you want to do, you feel you're not going to be able to do it. And it's about breaking out of that and saying, actually, I can do whatever I decide I can do. I don't need someone else who have already done it. Can't be what you can't see. I definitely think having all the... Like, I was a weirdo kid. I would literally be reading the Sunday Times business pages, like, aged 11, <laughs> and being like, oh, that's you, cool. And that's like, You sound like someone off The Apprentice now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Couldn't handle me on The Apprentice. <laughs> but, you know, like, 
As in, I pulled so many different references of things that I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to take a little bit from Oprah Winfrey's story and a little bit from Martha Stewart's story and a little bit from... And I just absorbed whether it was pop culture or movies. There's a really famous black movie called Boomerang where Eddie Murphy co-produced it and it was the first time I saw a black woman in a business suit running a company. Mm. And this film is, like, legendary. It's like a really cool ad agency fully staffed by black people. And I remember seeing it being like, yeah, I'm going to wear a power suit to work. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) So I know what you mean about carving your own path, but then I also agree with what Scarlett says, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. But it's about basically being able to, like, adopt all those different things and say... You're not trying Every, to just anyone be one is person. okay. Any one of those paths is okay. But also, I think that you can't be what you can't see. That's why it often is so hard for women to go for the things they want or even know the things they want. Because you know, I know me and my mum were talking about this the other day. But for me, growing up, the only women that like we had pictures of in my house were like beautiful women and then successful men. So it was always that thing of like, I do think role models can be so important. The CEO who runs Black Girls Code in America, mm. which is a, an organisation specifically for African-American girls to get them into tech, she's the most powerhouse woman I've ever met. I was just blown away by her. Um, she said, you can be what you can't see. It's a lot harder. Yeah. But she said, somebody always is. Somebody's always the first. But it's really hard to be the first. And it's so interesting, Shama, what you just said, which is, I saw one film, I saw one woman in one power suit and went, it's possible. And actually, sometimes how little representation we need to be able to go and do what you've done, which is completely start your own company from scratch and become the successful entrepreneur. In fact, Shama, that's really inspired me to hear your reading. Okay. So my reading is about co-parenting, and this actually is a good example of I didn't see this, I just made it up. I am the eldest child of a single mother, so there's four of us children, and my mum like raised us, and I remember thinking, I never want to raise children like this, this is a madness. But because I come from such a big family, I was always like dropped off at grandparents or dropped off at aunties. I come from a huge Jamaican family. I've got 13 aunties and uncles and, like, 70 cousins. And I don't mean, like, 70 random cousins. I mean, like, I know them. (laughs) (laughs) So we had a surrogate family. And when I started my company, Warnells, I was 24 years old. And one of the first highs I had was a single mom who just walked in off the street and was like, this is cool. What is this? And I was like, it's a nail salon. She's like, oh, I like painting nails. I was like, okay, cool do the course and you can come and work here. I gave her a job and I remember that the more, um, you know, I've had probably over 100 girls work at WARA over the last nine years the company's been in existence. When we first started nine years ago, the thing that stopped women excelling at work in my particular workplace was childcare. They would always turn up late, babysit didn't come, mom can't look after the child, like various issues based around childcare. Later on, it became more about mental health and anxiety. So I was thinking about how these two things were linked and how the progression of my team was very much limited by co-parenting. I had my son when I was 26, so the middle of setting up this business. And I remember when he was eight months old saying to his dad, well, He's 50% your DNA, so you can look after him 50% of the time. Mm. And then I just said it, and then that was it. So we did a split, which we still do, even in separated now. So I have my son 
Saturday, alternate Sunday, one o'clock till Wednesday, one o'clock. So I pick him up on Saturday, this Saturday at one, and I have him Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I drop him off at school Wednesday morning at nine, and then I pick him up on Sunday. And we've done that for six years, and that's what's led me to write this essay. So co-parenting. For me, supporting lone parents is the starting point for equality. It's the foundation that allows other conversations to happen, like increasing the economy and productivity of a nation and improving gross domestic happiness. Most of these lone parents are women. For the women who choose to start a family, they cannot even begin to think about taking incremental steps in their career if they are unable to work because of the domestic and emotional labour they have to endure unpaid. Of course, we should be supporting families, whatever they look like. But ultimately, there is a difference between single, i.e. lone parents, and co-parents. Co-parenting can happen whether you're still with your partner or not, and whatever your sexual orientation. Co-parenting can happen without a partner at all. For those who have moved to a new city and don't have their biological family around them to share the child rearing, a strong network of aunties or uncles is completely invaluable. We made co-parenting the norm in our household before my partner and I separated, and we still work that way. We have a 50-50 split, half the week at my place, half the week at his, and this is uncommon but incredibly important. Why? Number one, I would not be able to run my business without my son's father to share half the childcare load. And if that isn't a big enough reason, like yeah. what else is? My business currently employs 20 other women, I've got two businesses, so I have 20 in my now salon and I have 10 in my app. I've been able to create work opportunities for others specifically because of my domestic setup. But most importantly, and this one's a little more esoteric, I wouldn't have the headspace to come up with innovative ideas and to take my business to a global level if my mind was occupied by all the small daily tasks women have to handle in the home. And this is a complete luxury. Imagine if every woman had this advantage. How many new businesses would spring up? How many more unbiased technological innovations would we have? How many more women would have great jobs as a result? I'm working towards this in two ways. I'm helping girls to start applying critical thinking to their position in life very early by supporting an organisation called Fearless Futures. As they get to school level age, this critical thinking will enable them to write their own rules, which is what we said, on how they should behave at home and at work, like asking for co-parenting at home or for more money at work. Second thing I do, and this is what's really cool about women running their own businesses, is that you can completely write new rules. I ensure that my business gives shared parental leave so that men have the opportunity to take on domestic roles at home. After that, all of the work can focus on improving the situation for women in workplace, but we have to get them there first. Who wrote the rule that single fathers only see their children every other weekend? This was a plot line that I completely scrubbed out of my life. I'm not going to pretend it was easy and I would budget five years of emotional hardship mm. <laughs> for you to hold on to consistency, routine and to discover with your co-parent what works for both you and your child together as a family. It's not an easy ride, but stand firm because I promise you that it's worth it. Encourage the women around you to challenge societal norms and to write their own rules on the balance between work and home. Promote positive images of involved fathers that are empowered, not emasculated. I believe that unless we create gender equality in the home, we can't do it at work. These small changes will get big results. Woo! That's a really 
it's a really practical piece of writing. And I think personally, the can I say this in a quick? I don't know. The happiest parents I know aren't with their partner that they do share. Yeah, it's such, of, it's such it's, a shame, but I think they might be right. Just because they get brunch and... <laughs> I get facials. That's the I thing. go swimming every Saturday morning and yeah, I love it. Yeah, and then when they're with the child, they're like, oh my God, I've missed you yeah. so much, as opposed to you're always fucking here. <laughs> <laughs> you again. I mean... Hello, Guilty Feminist. It's Deborah Francis-White. I just wanted to let you know there is a show in London and some of our listeners complain they can't get tickets, that they're not available. So get in now if you would like to come to the Coliseum, the home of the English National Opera, on the 27th of November. Rachel Paris and I are doing a show about music. It's going to be a riot of a night. You've not experienced The Guilty Feminist until you've sung I Will Survive at the home of the English National Opera. It will be 10.30pm, but it's only a one-episode show, so don't worry, it won't go on forever and the tubes run late. Please book now at londoncoliseum.org. That's London, C-O-L-I-S-E-U-M dot org. It's going to be a wonderful night. Also, we are coming around the whole of the UK to do a really big tour. This is going to be an all-singing, all-dancing, really fabulous, feel-good evening of, let's be clear, feminist cabaret, feminist vaudeville. Uh, This show will not be podcast. You've got to come out for it. And if you go to guiltyfeminist.com, you can see that we should be coming to a town or a city near you. Look for the closest one. Tickets are going fast, I warn you. So get tickets now for next year or they're going to all be gone. They really are going fast. They also make great Christmas presents. Could you do me a favour? We really want to keep this podcast running every single Monday, including Christmas, throughout the whole year. And what that means is we need a little bit of help from you. Here's something you could do. On your phone, go to Apple Podcasts. Or on your laptop, go to iTunes. Find The Guilty Feminist and rate and review a recent episode or just some recent episodes, how you're feeling about the podcast this year. You've probably reviewed it in the past, but if you could put another review for you know something recent, that would be awesome. And obviously, give it five stars, gang. If you have already read my book, could you go to amazon.co.uk and review it there? And Goodreads and review it there. This really, really helps. And I really, really appreciate you doing it. Also, buying the book really helps. If you're looking for Christmas presents this year, go and grab the book from Waterstones or another bookshop or Amazon. We'd love to see you at Global Pillage. And we have some live shows coming up at King's Place in London on the 8th of December and the 15th of December where we're doing our Christmas special. You can get tickets for that at kingsplace.co.uk. And don't forget to listen to the episodes. The season has started at globalpillage.net. And while you're there... Go and check out the new season of Grown Up Land at BBC Sounds. And finally, if you haven't yet heard the Amnesty International Guilty Feminist Secret Policeman's podcast, it is absolutely a winner. You will hear a lot of messages about human rights that are really important and actions that you can take, but also some of the most extraordinary comedy that you will hear. We have some really, really big names, some of whom you know and love from The Guilty Feminist doing new material. Some of them you won't know or you won't have heard before. And we've revived some classic sketches with some feminist spins. So please, please, please go to our feed and listen to the Secret Policeman's podcast from Amnesty and The Guilty Feminist. And now back to the show. (laughs) 
raised, you don't have any children. How do you do your feminism in everyday life? That's the way Sharma Dean does her feminism. She's actively, every single time she goes to work or fully parents, you know, she's living her values. How do you think you do your feminism? Well, I have lots of conversations about all of this stuff. I try and unpick all of the bad thought patterns that I've gotten into my head that I can't do things or that I need to fancy a certain type of man or chase after a certain thing that isn't good for me. And also, I masturbate a lot. And I think that <laughs> is an act of feminism. Which leads us to your reading. Yeah. Us- what a beautiful segue. <laughs> so- That's the most beautiful segue I've seen in the business. <laughs> This is called The Female Wank, but female is crossed out, so it's really just called The Wank, but you can't see it. So, it's that, you know, it should that just be called The Wank. a beautiful podcasting description right there. <laughs> um, okay. The first time I was turned on, I was eight. Kim Kardashian's sex tape. A girl in my class showed it to me after school. My vagina felt like a hot air balloon. I ran home so that I could finish the feeling alone. I'll never forget it. Sex with myself for the first time. A feeling of utter bliss. And then suddenly, I felt ashamed. Disturbed. Like I deserved to be locked up. But I continued to do it all the time, in secret. A teddy bear, a pillow, a TV remote. It was the biggest source of comfort and the biggest source of loneliness. No one had ever told me that girls could touch themselves. Meanwhile, boys were being boys, wanking in the toilets at school wanking alongside their friends to the same porn video. (laughs) A community of wankers. (laughs) Fathers were joking with their sons about what type of porn they watched, coming of age. Boys were taught to think that the female orgasm was as simple as unlocking an iPhone. All you need is a light fingerprint and she will come. (laughs) Sex with boys was a misunderstanding. When it happened, there was no hot air balloon feeling. He thought, oh, put it in there and she'll enjoy it. Every time I so much aside, he thought it was an orgasm. (laughs) His pleasure was more important than mine, and my pleasure was locked up in the box of secrets, because I still thought I was a freak. It wasn't until I was 20 that my friend told me that she did the same. What I would have done to have known that for all of those past 12 years. All that anguish wasted on nothing. And so the next time I had sex, I put my hand down there and I showed him how it was done, whoever he was. The sex I have with myself unlocks new levels of sex I have with other people, like Candy Crush. (laughs) Patriarchy has attempted to write female pleasure out of our culture. Patriarchy wants us to think that our sexual gratification can only be granted to us by a man. But life is too short to be having bad sex. So tell your mates that girls might too. Nice. Well, I'll never see Candy Crush in the same way again. <laughs> That's uh, very much how I see Candy Crush. <laughs> well, I certainly have a new euphemism. I'm just going off to play Candy Crush. <laughs> because we want to throw over to you for questions, I'm going to read mine, and then we can open it up and we can all have a great big old chat. Mine is called Pink Protest, and the reason it's called Pink Protest is because... That's the outfit that Scarlett and Grace run. So I was sending it off to them with the email heading, this is for you, pink protest people. And that's how it ended up in the book, pink protest. To be fair, you, you were also one of the people that did sound quite late. 
So that might be why I I mean, what it should be called is Black Lesbian John Cleese. Um, Which would have been a weird subject heading I mean, get in Penguin Random House's email inbox. Much weirder, much weirder. Recently, the BBC's head of comedy, Shane Allen, said in a response to a reference to Monty Python's Flying Circus... If you're going to assemble a team now, it's not going to be six Oxbridge white blokes. It's going to be a diverse range of people who reflect the modern world. It caused the usual for Rory and Terry Gilliam snapped back. Terry Gilliam's one of the Pythons, in case you're young. Um, The Pythons are a sketch group, in case you're young. (laughs) Terry Gilliam snapped back. It made me cry, the idea that no longer six white Oxbridge men can make a comedy show. Now we need one of this, one of that, everybody represented. This is bullshit. I no longer want to be a white male. I don't want to be blamed for everything wrong in the world. I tell the world now I'm a black lesbian. (laughs) Gilliam, and many who agree with him on Twitter, is not taking into account that most stories are still told from a white male, straight, and in this country, often Oxbridge, point of view. It's unlikely that six white men would get their own sketch show now because there are more routes to comedy for people who've had other life experiences. The renowned Cambridge Footlights sketch group and breeding ground for the comedically famous used to be an exclusively male playground. Now women have a chance to perform right and direct. Working men's clubs, traditionally all-male preserves, as the name suggests, were the training grounds for stand-up comics. While it is not uncommon to see a comedy club with an all or almost all male lineup in 2018, there are many places where women can tell their jokes and develop their craft. The same is true for men of colour on both counts. White straight men are still massively overrepresented on our TV screens, but other groups are definitely becoming more visible. It is certainly not easier to be a black lesbian. As comedian Lolly Adafope quipped on Twitter, name your favourite top five black lesbians working today. (laughs) However, it is possible that a black lesbian's comedy voice might have a route to market now. When the Pythons got their first commission, it was simply inconceivable that a black woman, let alone an out gay black woman, could be seen or heard on a national network. I love the Pythons, and like most people in British comedy, can quote swathes of their work. Imagine losing the dead parrot sketch or the cheese shop. It'd be awful if they weren't there anymore. Now imagine the sketch shows we did lose because we never got to hear the genius comic voices of their black lesbian counterparts. That's certainly what happened. They were definitely hilarious comedy minds and exquisite sketch performances among the black female queer community in 1969. They were women who had their friends and families in hysterics, mimics, surrealist satirists, Most of them correctly assumed that they could never perform their work publicly or develop material that would be showcased on television. They got another job. Others no doubt submitted sketches but were turned down and gave up. Some tried the theatre, but as Natasha Bonilam at the British Library explains, during the late 1950s and 1960s, black female playwrights were virtually invisible on the British stage. Their works were not being published or produced. Some of those women are elderly now, their potential ministry of silly walks, undeveloped and unnurtured, will die with them. Some have taken their holy grail to the grave. We don't know the name of the black lesbian John Cleese, and we never will. But she walked down Carnaby Street in the summer of love, doing funny voices, throwing away witty one-liners and snapping back her most edgy observations about Harold Wilson and Woodstock. 
Her friends were doubled over listening to her. Let's call her Clara. She probably worked in an office, typing for the men we remember. Perhaps she worked at the BBC and every now and again suggested a brilliant punchline which was hoovered up and used without credit. She probably loved always look on the bright side of life and knew all the words. We will never know all the lyrics to her songs, though. It was simply impossible for her to share them. It's not easy now, but with an enormous amount of work, courage, mould-breaking and luck, it's possible. Today, I drink to Clara, Susan, Annie and Aruna and their lost collective comedy library of Alexandria, full of sketches and stand-up about their political views, their cultural heritage, their dating life, their window on racism, sexism and classism and their attitude to the planet we are spinning on. Let's take a moment to miss their comedy wonders as much as we would the spam sketch if it went missing tomorrow. We hope we won't lose any more from this day forward. Thank you. So, gang, you've sort of heard some of the essays in here. There are so many more wonderful ones. We would love to hear your questions now to get some conversation going. Has anybody got one? There's one over here. A few years ago in my job, I was told to bake a cake as a way of an apology to my colleagues who I'd annoyed. Now, at the time... <laughs> Not the first question I thought we were going to get. <laughs> Not gonna I'm, I'm loving this. At the time, I was like 21. A bake-off apology. <laughs> Probably not as glamorous because I hated everyone there. Um, But (laughs) I was told to do it and I never said anything because I was just, like, he was my boss and I I just shit it and I panicked. (laughs) So what advice would you give to people who are ever in that situation where people are just kind of... I mean, you're literally the only person that's ever been in that situation. (laughs) No, I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm joking. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Could you unpack it for us a little bit more? Because I do know what you mean. I worked in a school and on a teacher training day, I was in the staff room, so there were no kids. And we were like, me and some of the other younger TAs were just having a bit of a laugh and a bit of swearing. And so one of the older TAs reported us saying that we were being really inappropriate in the workplace but there were no kids around. It was in a staff room. It's not like we were swearing in front of all the kids. So I got named as the person who was like effing and jeffing. And he told me that I needed to write a card and bake a cake to this woman as a way of an apology. So in my head, I was like, you would not say this if I was a man. But I just did not. I could not say anything. I was stunned. So, yeah, just what advice would you give to anyone else in that situation? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I think Sean might have an answer, but I have a commiseration because I used to be very, very shy and very, very self-conscious, have very bad social anxiety. And I genuinely thought, genuinely believed this, that the only thing I had to offer the world was that I could bake. And I thought it was the only good thing about me. And when I started university, I would take brownies to every single class I went to because I thought it was all I had to offer. And I do think it's a particularly female thing. And I think I thought, I felt so worthless in myself that I thought, this is a nice thing that women are supposed to do to be nice. I'm going to do this and people will like me. And they didn't. They stayed the brownies and then left. Um, but so I don't really know what to do. But that, I do recognise that kind of attitude. Do you have any attitude? Sean, Sharma's got an answer. So I thought you must have indicated. Do you have an answer? Well, my answer is slightly linked to Scarlett's essay, actually, is that when you're 21 or if you haven't had 
opportunities for conflict, it's very hard to know what to do in each situation. So everyone in this room will be at varying levels of conflict resolution. Sorry, I am super practical. It's so boring. <laughs> I'm like, um, so what I found is that the ability to negotiate and the ability for conflict resolution is just a muscle memory like everything else. In the same way that if a boy texts you or comes up to you in a nightclub, you have some default responses, right? You know what to do in that situation because it's happened to you so frequently. You're either be like, yeah, I like you or who are you talking to or as if. You have your default responses. So what I do, one of the best lessons I've ever given myself is in the art of negotiation. I watched Stanford lectures on it. I read The Art of War. I watched Never Split the Difference from FBI hostage experts because I found that as a woman, <laughs> I was constantly being talked into things that I mm. didn't want to do. So all my advice to you would be to accept that you were 21 and that happened to you and it was the first time, but it won't happen again because you'll go and do your homework. You'll prepare yourself for all the different different situations and scenarios you would be in and you would prepare how you would feel in that and I still get caught the, the only times when I my feathers get ruffled is when I'm caught off guard and my response isn't like the one I would do and it doesn't happen very often to me but when I respond in a like like you said stunned because that's the feeling right you're like someone blindsided you that's when I'm like oh god well, let me just prepare what I'm going to do next time, you know? So, yeah, mm. we all have these situations. But what was the thing that we should look up? What's the negotiation oh, thing? Oh, God, there's so many. It's called Never Split the Difference. Never Split the Difference. The Art of Negotiation from a Former FBI Hostage. That book changed my life. <laughs> yeah. Former if you try and have an argument with me now, right, like in a workplace or something, I have all the lines. Wow. Okay. I'll, I'll give you a really that. good one that you can all try tomorrow. If someone does something to you, don't say, oh, why are you being like that? Just say, it seems to me like you're feeling unsettled. Tell, um, tell me more about that. Oh. Try it. It seems to me that I've upset the other teacher in some way. I'd like to know more about exactly what she was feeling and how I, you know, how she... I would literally turn it and all on them. what a cake has to do with this mm. situation. No, but that's the thing. I wouldn't even I mention like okay. relevance. Wouldn't mention I wouldn't mention the cake. Wouldn't I would say it seems to me like I upset somebody in this situation. Please tell me more about that and let them dig oh. themselves into a verbal hole. Because then they'll be like, yeah, what's this got to do with the cake, actually? This is good. So if they come back with cake, you go, could you explain to me the relevance of a Victoria sponge? Yeah. And then they'll be like, well, I'm just saying, you know. The more uh, they say it, the more they'll sound stupid. Yeah. yeah. But I'm taking notes here. This is really good if stuff. women, I, I actually found, do you know the working women's club, The Wing in New York? Yeah. I took a photo of an incredible book that was on the library called The Art of Negotiation for women mm. and I'm going to like buy that one specifically because it's a big deal. Do you know, Charmant, we had on the podcast, it's the only episode we've ever charged for and generally we give the money, the proceeds to a charity of the month or whatever, but it's we had a former MI5 negotiator on the show. I mean, you would love I it. I that. Oh, she, yeah. And she up used my to... negotiation game over here. <laughs> she used to get hostages back. Wow. And yeah, her techniques were really, really interesting. But she used to work for MI5 and now she just does that freelance. And I was like, who's, who's calling? 
doing a freelance hostage? She goes, she said, oh, she said, you know, corporations, aid organizations, they don't have to be, have time to be fanning around with, you know. She said, they just need their people back right now. So they call me. I was like, this is fascinating. And I said, but like, how would people get in touch? She said, they could find me if they need me. I was like, oh my God. You can get, you can buy, it's the only episode we've ever sold and it's a fiver. You can go and download it. Okay, let's have another question. So just on that point about muscle memory, actually, so that's a really good tool, but I'm 38 and I can't change my muscle memory to stop apologising. And I've been to see several wonderful talks like this from other feminists and I'm not huge on massive novel reading, but I read a lot of feminist articles. I love Cindy Gallup. I love a lot of you up there. Um, Some of you are new to me, but I don't know how to stop apologising. I could you give me an example of situations that you apologise? <laughs> Are you interrogating me? <laughs> um, it seems to me. <laughs> Grace is very good on this. She's, um, she's, Grace has helped me with this more than anyone in my life because um, I have the same thing. Yeah, Scarlett does have the same thing. But, like, I think... I'm sorry. it's deeply ingrained in us Mm. to do this and it's so so hard like I'm 24 but started working in tv when I was 22 and at the beginning I would constantly be in meetings with just men and I would say something and I would think it was really good when I was saying it and then as soon as I would say I would say oh sorry anyway don't mind don't mind like when you say no worries if not we Um, always end things of no worries if not rather than I want this from you so please can you give it to me but as women we feel it's courteous to say oh please can you do this thing for me but no worries if not but I actually do really need it but no no worries if you can't do it but I actually like really need it Um, so I think that's the only thing that I can say is that and I say to Scarlett it's like it's so deeply ingrained in us and it's about unlearning that and unpicking it and doing that work with yourself really because it's sadly been offloaded onto us. Amy, you look like you're desperate to get in. Yeah, no, I was going to say, kind of bouncing off the sorry thing, for me, it's muscle memory not to do anything. If something is happening that I don't agree with, quite often I'll find it easier to sit back rather than raise my voice. And the way I've tried to combat that is to think what my best friend would tell me if she or he saw me in that situation. So that's what I try and do. I think, would Sam want me to send this email? Would Jess do that? Would Anna tell me to do that? And I think, yeah. Yeah, they would. They would want what's best for me. You should just imagine Donald Trump's face right before you're about to say, I'm sorry. Okay, that might work. And it's you, it's him that you're saying sorry to. And you say, I don't want to fucking say sorry to you. (laughs) You don't say it. Just don't say sorry ever. There's also an app as well. Sorry. Hmm? No, just a... a genuine story because I interrupted and that was rude. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, a practical tip is to, I don't know if you have a job where you send a lot of emails or texts but practice not doing any emails first because it's like easier to read over an email and delete the sorries. I often will go back over an email and realise I've apologised 20 times. <laughs> and then hello. Yeah, like, hello, hi. Sorry. No, I do. I go, hi, sorry for emailing today. Um, and <laughs> on then, a Tuesday. On a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and then I just go back and delete them all. And that's easier than yeah, deleting conversation, really which isn't a thing you can do. But can I put on the table this? People do things for good reasons. At some point, our sorries are making ourselves smaller served us. Mm. 
At some point in our life, it made us feel safe or it kept us safe. At some point when we were being bullied at school or we never thought boys or girls would like us or we had a particular teacher making ourselves smaller, explaining ourselves, saying sorry, at some point it was doing something for you. You wouldn't have learnt it. Mm. And so be kind to yourself. It was useful once. It was a strategy to keep yourself safe when you felt vulnerable. It is now no longer useful to you in, for example, your business life or your social life. So you can just let it go. But it was a comfort to you. It was a protector to you, right? So it's okay. It's just an old strategy that you don't need anymore. And you can just take it off like a coat and let it go. And sometimes it will come back, especially when you're feeling vulnerable. You think, oh, there's my blanket that I need. And then you just go, oh, do I need this blanket now? Or is this just muscle memory? And you can let it go. And I find things like if I'm in a meeting and I've taught lots of other women to do this, and there's a couple of chapters about confidence in my book, the Good Feminist book, is actually making little tallies of how often the most powerful person in the room who's making all the deals and making all decisions or butting in or whatever, how often they're qualifying and how often you're qualifying. Or I write out on a conference call, if I'm in an intimidating situation, the beginning of the sentence and I read it. So I say, I'm just going to come in, Jeff, because it's important to say here. And if I write that out, the end of the sentence will not be uh, something that doesn't matter. Because I've told my brain, this is important. Jeff's got to shut up. (laughs) So start rehearsing those things and realizing that's just a new strategy. But don't beat yourself up for it, because at one point it kept you safe. Also, perhaps a training wheels version of that is to replace sorry with thank you. Mm. Thank you for waiting for me. Instead of, sorry, I'm late. Yeah, I've heard that, and it does sound enticing, but yeah. I'm sorry, I'm late. Oh, thank you for waiting for me. I'm going to struggle with it. I'm going to struggle. Do we have any other... The final level is, it was your pleasure to wait for me. That's a sassy level. That's the last level, that's Candy the, Crush, feminist Candy Crush. It's like the golden sass, though. Yeah. But you're suggesting, like, default responses again, and that's what's good. You just need to write down every situation in which, like, in what things you say <laughs> on, on a spreadsheet and write alternatives <laughs> and practice nice. that. Excel because spreadsheets I, are great. I, yeah. I love your... I totally agree with what you said. It protected and served you at one point. But my whole thing is you have to create new methods for yourself, new methods. So just erase the old list and write new ones and just keep practicing them to yourself in the mirror, wherever, because that's how muscle memory is created, not by reading other people's words, is retelling your own words. Also, sorry, because I'm a techie person, there are two apps that are useful for this. If you do a lot of video conferencing and you use Zoom video, it will tell you on the conference if someone's talking too much. Oh, my God. There's also a really cool app called The Interrupter where you can have it recording in a meeting room, and if a woman gets interrupted, it will beep (laughs) by a male voice. And then the third thing is there's an app, which I'll tweet all of these later, um, that, you know, like autocorrect on email it deletes all the female sorries and like wouldn't you mind if if you write would you mind if it will like autocorrect it to can you wow. so yeah oh. well, if you just have great. those we can put them in the show notes for the okay, podcast also, as well I'll send them to you because great. they're highly useful things like sometimes you need data to prove that you're right <laughs> it seems to me <laughs> that you are correct and I'm not sorry about it <laughs>
Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is Jessica Regan here from the Big Speeches Workshop. I'm so excited to share with you that we are holding our workshop again on the 5th of January at the Bunker Theatre and also on the 6th of January. There are spaces available for both workshops, for yourself or for a Christmas present for a friend. What better way to start the year than finding your voice and taking your space? Looking forward to seeing you there. Do we have any other questions? Hi. I'm not great with public speaking, so give me a minute, but... Um, Wait, can we just rewrite yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. I know. I just I feel like, like we just said that. What we need to that, say but... is my app is telling me... Thank you. Thank you. I, I can we just rewind, 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 rewind? Yeah. Start again. Start again. I'm so happy to be here I'm and here so is my question. so great to be here. Um, so basically, I'm in a really male-dominated career. I'm only one of five women in the country that do my job. Wow. Um, Can you say what that job is? So I'm a groundsman for a football club. I work on the grass. Wow. Yeah. Are you groundsman or are you groundswoman? <laughs> groundsperson. Um, I, they actually corrected it. I was the first female in the career, so they corrected it oh. from groundsman to groundsperson. Wow. Um, here we go, here we go, here we go. Natural glass ceiling. Yes, you have smashed a glass, yeah. ironically, a grass ceiling on the ground. Yeah. A <laughs> it's like a, a grass ceiling. <laughs> it's a grass ground. It's a glass ceiling, grass ground situation. Continue. So, unfortunately, a few years ago, um, I was on a night out with my colleagues and unfortunately groped by my manager. At the time, I didn't know what to do and I really pushed it back and I've only just learned to deal with it. Um, my question would be, in such a male-dominated career of a woman being in that situation, what advice would you be to kind of forward that and get on with what you're doing and kind of report it and have that strength to do it? Because I was the only female I felt like I didn't have that backing. Um, and the guys kind of passed it off as a joke. You know, they were like, <laughs> grabbed your ass, you know. It, it was kind of the norm. And I don't want other women to feel like that. So... I would like to know how you said you would advise other women on processing and going ahead with that. Can I just ask, did they pass it off as a joke at the time or did you try and talk to them afterwards? So at first I went over to two of the guys and I said, look, this has just happened. I am not happy with it. I want you to know in case I take this forward. I was really unsure as what I was going to do about it. But I made people aware that it had gone on and that if my manager was saying that never happened, then I always had that proof that five minutes later I told someone. But, um, and was that when they brushed you off? No, they were really good with it. It was when kind of the rest of the guys knew, they kind of laughed at it and they were like, oh, well, yeah. you know what he's like or, you know, just kind of one of those things. And, and did you take it any further? No, no. I found that the relationship I had with my manager was quite distant anyway. And I felt like it would not help me progress in my career as I'd like to stay where I was mm. for quite some time. And have you ever spoken to him about it since? No, I don't. Everyone else knows. But with him, he's quite um, not someone you can confront. Mm. So I never never brought it up with him. It's so difficult in male-dominated mm. environments because mm. this happens in comedy all the time. And exactly what you're saying is... I take this forward at the expense of my own career. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what happened with the women who were sexually assaulted, if that's the right turn of phrase, by Louis C.K., they did report it to other people in comedy and they were told, well, you're lucky Louis likes you or 
don't make it awkward. You won't get booked for the gig. He will. And then he lied about it for years and said that they were making it up. Mm -hmm. And then they got sidelined in comedy. So it's a very, very difficult thing. And the Me Too movement is really helping us because it's providing a structure that we can use. How do you guys feel about this? I think there is, obviously, you're so a minority in terms of women in this career, but there is strength in even small numbers. So if there are other women working in this field, Mm. it's about banding together, finding that community with each other, talking about your experiences, and then you feel less alone. And then if you were going to take something forward, if something has happened to one of you guys, then you feel that you have that Mm. sort of confidence to do it because it must feel so isolating. I can't even imagine how that feels. I I would also say, I mean, it's just hell and I'm so sorry you went through that. But if you don't know any of them and you can't find that in your real life, have a look on social media because there are actually some amazing female football advocacy groups popping up. We've been working with a group called This Fangirl, which is all about female football fans. And there's a group that are trying to get menstrual products into stadiums, Mm. like football stadiums, uh, and having loads of success. And for me, I know like when I was ill when I was younger and going through times, I found people online because I didn't, there was no one in my life that was going through what I was going through. So I don't know if that's a way to do it. I think you've been incredibly brave just to share that with everybody here because, I mean, the saddest thing about your story is how common it is and how I'm sure that if we haven't experienced it, we know somebody who has. You were so smart to tell someone straight away, but then when you're left to your own devices, you're kind of, you talk yourself into being like, oh, I was being silly or it's not that important. Do you know what I mean? And I actually think you've done so well to even process this, Mm. like you said, but you won't get the closure until you talk to your manager. And that's just the fact of it. Also, I think an important part of Me Too is bringing men along the ride to say, you did this to me. Mm. This is how I felt. And I want you to know, you don't have to. So this is reversed, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whatever they respond does it matter? No. Whatever happens after that actually doesn't matter. Yeah. But it's about letting them know how they made you feel yeah. and that your feelings are valid. Mm. You know, in your situation, you've clearly decided you want to stay in the role. Mm. You want to continue working with that manager. Yeah. So, you know, just saying, I'm not here to threaten you to say that I'm going mm. to report it. I don't even want to take this further. You just have to know yeah. you did this and it wasn't cool. Yeah. Thank mm. you. We've got two urgent questions down the front. We'll keep them short. So you spoke a lot about kind of intersectional feminism and I'm a white cis female, so I know I've got quite a lot of privilege and I'm still learning and I know I'm not perfect. So what I want to ask is what would your kind of tips and things be for someone who wants to be a better intersectional feminist? I feel like the white women who are not disabled should not answer this first. Because <laughs> we would be centering ourselves. So I'm going to first throw to Amy, what can we all do if we are white, straight, cis, non-disabled, what can we do to make the world fairer and better for our sisters? I think it's partly listening to stories that aren't our own. I think, Scarlett, you write in the book about how you were reading lots of books and then you realised that they were all by kind of white women. Yeah. So you decided to read books 
you know, by other humans. And I think that's a really good point, you know, just hearing stories. But also, I think there's something in making room at the table. If, for instance, I was taking up space and I could make room for someone who perhaps is more oppressed than me, then make room. And it's astounding how many people don't make room and don't realise that they're doing it. So I think just being aware of that and going forward with that awareness, you'll start picking it out naturally. Shardine? For me, I would say, how many people do you know outside of your race or class? As simple as that. We'd be surprised at how tribal we are as humans. It might be that I only hang out with people who go raving in Dalston. That's a tribe. Do you know what I mean? So it's on my checklist for a boyfriend, actually. It's like, does he have friends outside of his race or class? Because if I'm your only black friend, then we can't be friends. So I think that it's really important for you to know people from upper classes, lower classes, people of different cultures, different ethnicities, just in a not token way, but hang out with them. It's as simple as that. I 100% agree with that because through The Guilty Feminist, I've become close friends with women of colour, with queer women, with disabled women, who I sort of see a lot on WhatsApp daily. And that's when I've understood it. Mm -hmm. Because if you see someone once every six months and you give them a platform in your particular, whatever it is that you're doing, you know, you've got a panel or something and you think, oh, I must get somebody on. That's great. But it's only when... It's like, yes, you're right. But it's only when you know the minutiae of someone's Mm -hmm. life that you get it. Because the more that, like, for example, I've become sort of really close friends with Bisha Kayeli and Susan McComa, that on WhatsApp, it'll be like, oh, you know, what you're doing right now? Oh, I've just had this really horrible audition where the guy had a big go about my afro and blah, blah, blah. I'm not really, you know, and you just hear a drip, drip, drip and you get it. And I think the more you can make actual friends and it's Susan McComa because I interview in the Guilty Feminist book, I interview women to make it more intersectional because I want this different points of view. And Susan says in that, I'm not saying collect ethnics like stamps, but I am saying get some black friends. And she has a thing, black best friend TM, trademark. Um, it's a oh, really I good essay. To that. Sassy black friend. There's always a sassy black friend in TV shows. Yeah. Think yeah. of D in Clueless. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's so many. When I was growing up, there's always a sassy black friend. And I'm like, I don't want to be an accessory. Like, so, 100%, yeah. yeah. It can only be somebody who's important to you by getting to know them and you can't sort of go up to a black woman and go, please be my friend. Well, also, um, social media, there's a lot of people that I follow online who I feel, you know, vent a lot of their experiences, like Issa Rae, and I feel like I get their sort of day-to-day stuff that's going yeah. on and that's another Even good that, way yeah. people you can't access but to know yeah. what they're going through as well. Don't be afraid to, you know, don't go up to a black woman and say, like, be my friend. <laughs> but don't be afraid to try and make friends you know when mm. you think about when I went to university like we were all in a room together and had to try and make friends and then we all get out of that habit mm. and you know you can go out your way and do it and if you don't like them use don't Scarlett stick. Curtis's trademark brownie method <laughs> go up to people with brownies <laughs> yeah. yeah sorry I shouldn't say that what was that weed brownies sure sure so the official recommendation, <laughs> but that isn't from Penguin Publishing, and I need to make that clear, <laughs> is drugged biscuits. And that's <laughs> useful information for you to have. Do we have one more question here? 
We've spoken a couple of times tonight about how sometimes we change our language or our behavior to, uh, we have to stop and look at ourselves and say, a man wouldn't do this, you know, when we talk about apologizing or negotiating or different ways. And I find it difficult sometimes to marry up how we stop ourselves from saying, well, I'm going to be more like a man then mm. and comply with the system when I don't want to just fit in a man-shaped box. I want to say that other boxes mm, yeah. should be allowed here. And how do you strike that balance? Because sometimes it feels like if you're acting like a man, you're cutting off other women I think who shouldn't have to change. Sometimes when I think about this, I think about what you were like when you were really young. And like when you're a kid and you're just playing with your friends and some of them are girls and some of them are boys, there are definitely things that the girls do that are different from the boys. And there are definitely things that the boys do that are different. But there aren't the same patriarchally conditioned things that we do and I think instead of thinking I'm changing myself to be more like a man it's not trying to be like bullshit and trying to be loud and trying to be male it's just trying to get rid of these things that as women we are taught that we should do and say to go about in the world well and also not seeing them as male traits. They are just characteristics that we all have and we embody different things. Mm. Men struggle with the same thing because men who are too emotional or like too soft get sort of criticised for being wet. And so then we're sort of confusing ourselves. But just seeing, you know, being loud or forthright just as a characteristic. But also there's a time for apologising. If you've upset somebody... Donald Trump doesn't apologise to anybody. And I would say that's extreme masculine up to 11, given the patriarchal norms, the way men are coached poorly. The way women are coached poorly is to apologise for offering somebody a biscuit. So (laughs) I don't think it's about male or female traits so much as to be aware of where we've been coached into unpleasant or uh, self-defeatist behaviours. But it is, it's about choosing the traits that you want to have. But sadly, there are some good traits that only men are allowed to have. And that's not fair. We should be allowed to pick the ones and say, I want to be like that, because that's a good thing. No one wants to be like Donald Trump. But we shouldn't allow ourselves to say there are masculine and feminine traits. There are just good traits and bad traits. And you should want to... But if you've spilt hot coffee into someone's lap, it's all right to say... I'm sorry, and here I've made you a cake. Mm. <laughs> like, it's when we are undermining ourselves with our apologies that I think it's a problem. I feel like I ask myself this question all the time, and it's such a good point. It's like, I've always, like I said, wanted to run a business. I've always wanted to have a certain level of power. And, you know, subconsciously or consciously, I realise that, well, the most powerful people are white males, so I guess I have to act more white male to achieve that power. And it's an ongoing, unfinished conversation of identity to be like, well, which part of the way that I've cultivated my personality is me and which is what I've adopted to be successful. And that's my personal dilemma that I'm working on all the time because, you know, my son's father actually said to me, but you're really like a guy. (laughs) And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you've always been like that. You're like, you know, you're really easy at cutting off emotion. You do this, you do that. And he's listing what you've said, what he perceives to be masculine traits. But I'm like, but that's just how I am. So I feel like my personal method is to infiltrate by adopting the traits that I perceive will take me to power. Because when I get there, then I can make 
the changes for everybody else. So exactly what you said, so that, you know, the women who are coming forward don't have to feel that they act that way. So it's what I said earlier about shared parental leave. It's like if any of the people in my company, male or female, then go on to run their own companies, because I've set this more feminine thinking method of shared parental leave, they will know that that's okay and normal. So I've done the things I needed to do, i.e. masculine traits, to be powerful, to infiltrate the tribes, to then break them from the inside and create new rules. Mm-hmm. Do you get it? <laughs> that is how you start a revolution. That is how you start a revolution from the inside. So to close, let's have one round of the lie game. This is a game in which we say, what is a lie that you've been told about being a man or being a woman? Amy, have you got a lie? Uh, yes, I have. A lie that I've heard is that a single older woman is a spinster and a single older man is a bachelor. Mm. And bachelors are cool and spinsters are sad. Mm. Big lie. Yeah, yes. big lie. Scarlett Curtis, what's a lie? I think I was told that to be a woman, the ultimate goal, like the best trait you can have is to be nice. Mm. And I think I spent a lot of my life trying to be nice before realising that nice people are often quite boring. (laughs) And I had a lot more to offer than just being nice. Mm. Grace Campbell. I was taught or told by society that women need to compete with each other and that you cannot be in a room with a woman without being in competition with her. And that is a lie. And that is something that I've gotten rid of in my psyche, but it's something that people really try and drill into us. Mine's similar, that there's only one spot at the top for a woman, and if you help someone else up, she might get it. That's absolute bollocks. The boys aren't doing that. It's jobs for the boys. Scratch each other's back. I do you a favour, you do me a favour, and we have to create, in response to their old boys' network, a new girls' network. Definitely agree. Sharma Dean, do you have a lie? I do have a lie. That you'd like to bust? (laughs) The lie I'd like to bust is that you have to automatically hate your new boyfriend's ex-girlfriend. I think it's something that we've been trained through stories, movies, songs, EastEnders. um, (laughs) And it's actually a way of dividing and conquering women and being an adult and accepting that your partner was with someone else before you and that person's probably all right because you both like the same guy is... Totally normal, and that's what the new norm should be. You don't have to hate your new boyfriend's ex-girlfriend or waste 10 hours a week stalking her on Instagram. Because we've all been there. (laughs) We certainly have. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist. Feminist, don't wear pink and other lies special. With me, Deborah Francis-White, Scarlett Curtis, Charmadine Reed, Amy Trigg and Grace Campbell. Like a terrier dog. I, I, I hope I it is. Hope a dog oh, is there a dog? It would be brilliant if there were. I bet it's a ringtone. It might be a baby. Um, either we'd be happy with any of those. Or a boyfriend. Um, <laughs> they do not. I don't want my boyfriend to make that sound. <laughs> I'm happy with it. I'm happy with any of those. Um,